Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area, but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. So you notice we didn't go to Ephesians chapter 2, and the reason is because this year we're kind of looking topically at some things, and while it fell under the importance of soteriology or the importance of the doctrine of salvation. At this time, all I really wanted to deal with was atonement. And so now we're going to move on. And the reason is because we're trying to do some things throughout this year and um, I'll run out of time. And so I already spent longer than I had anticipated on the subject of atonement. And so now I'm behind time. So now we have to try to figure out how to make up some time throughout the rest of the year. So this morning we're not going to be considering a uh, the, we're not going to be considering any other elements concerning the doctrine of salvation from the vantage point in which we were addressing atonement, but we still will be talking about the aspects of calling and conversion in salvation. And so we're going to consider a portion or one portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And next year, Lord willing, a lot of things will transpire, a lot of things will change, so who knows what happens uh, next year. And as a matter of fact, we'll look at one portion of this text here this morning that'll tell us not to even worry about tomorrow, much less next year, right? But um, if the Lord permits, uh, we will consider preaching through the Sermon on the Mount during the six Sundays in the Lenten season, which uh, this Sermon on the Mount is found in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Sundays during Lent are not actually part of the Lenten season, and so actually Lent doesn't belong to the worship of the church, but to the practice of the church. Um, however, that's something to consider at another point, another time, uh, just for your knowledge and understanding. However, uh, you know, Lent should influence our thoughts during this season, and the Sermon on the Mount would be a great focus of our preaching during that period of time. It's one of the reasons why we're looking at a portion of it here this morning. But that is a year from now, and we are going to consider this morning that our concern should not be about tomorrow, but today. And so we are going to focus on one portion of this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. But before we get into our text, we need to give a little background information because our text is actually coming from the middle of the sermon. And although um, there are, no matter where you tackle this sermon from, um, you are going to end up um, uh, with a lot of information, a lot of hard information, as a matter of fact. 
But the Sermon on the Mount is the first of five sermons or discourses by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. These include the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, the Discourse on Discipleship in Matthew 10, the Discourse of Parables in Matthew 13, and the Discourse on the Community of Faith in Matthew 18, and the Discourse on Future Events in Matthew 24 and 25. The Sermon on the Mount begins early in Jesus' ministry. Uh, This is the reason why you read in John about the multitudes uh, going away. You know, there was a lot of excitement and fanfare in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but it went away. And the reason why there was excitement and fanfare was because of what the people were receiving. And because of the spectacular elements like healings and miracles and things of that nature. And so they quickly fled, and one of the reasons is because Jesus' sermons were always hard. When we think about the Sermon on the Mount, for some reason today we have this fluffy, pillowy, mystical, cloudy thought of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus sitting there on this rock and... It just looks so peaceful and so forth. But when you actually read the Sermon on the Mount, it is a very hard sermon. Just like in John chapter 6, Jesus' discourse there was so hard that the disciples asked, who then can be saved? So we have a very faulty understanding Not only of Jesus, but also his message today. But this message, the Sermon on the Mount, begins early in Jesus' ministry, following Jesus' baptism by John in Matthew chapter 3 and his temptation in the wilderness in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. He begins his ministry in Matthew 4 and verse 12. And then, in chapter 5, Matthew begins to record the Sermon on the Mount. From In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And every one of Jesus' sermons is built upon that premise. Jesus' sermons, and the reason why, if we really investigate them and actually read them, we find out that they are actually very hard sermons because it's built upon this declaration, Repent. Turn from your sin and turn to God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In verses 18 through 22 in Matthew 4, Matthew records Jesus' calling of Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and James along with his brother John as disciples. And then at the end of chapter 4, Matthew records this in verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues... (laughs) That's always interesting, right? A Jew saying that about their synagogues. But teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people, then his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. 
Matthew 5 then begins at the conclusion of chapter 4 with Matthew stating, And seeing the multitudes. So now he acknowledges the multitudes that are following him. And so it goes up into a mountain. And his disciples come and are seated. And he opens up his mouth and teaches them, saying, And thus begins the Sermon on the Mount. It is believed by most that the sermon, that this sermon, takes place relatively early in Jesus' ministry for several reasons. First of all, because of its placement in the Gospel of Matthew. Second, because it immediately follows the calling of his disciples. Third, because the mass following of Jesus was immediate based upon the spectacular fanfare that arose due to the miracles he performed to, be, to begin his ministry. The Sermon on the Mount is an account of how Jesus' ministry be, and how he began his teaching and preaching. It is also an account of how his kingdom begins and how discipleship begins. He began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we are hearing from Jesus about this kingdom that he is calling them to enter in. To become citizens. To become disciples. To become followers of Jesus Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount is how it begins. This Sermon on the Mount is the standard of what it means to follow Jesus. I'd say it's probably something important that we should look at fully. St. Augustine began his book, Our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Clever title, right? Um, Our Lord's Sermon on the Mount by stating... If anyone will piously and soberly consider the sermon which our Lord Jesus Christ spoke on the mount, I guess even back in his day, they had a little problem with people actually considering what Jesus said. (laughs) So he said, if anyone will piously and soberly consider this, He said, as we read it in the gospel, according to Matthew, I think that he will find in it, so far as regards the highest morals, a perfect standard of the Christian life. You see, this is where true discipleship begins. And Jesus gives the meaning of what it is to be called unto himself. And this is why we are dealing with one portion of this sermon, because we have completely eradicated Jesus' sermon as the standard of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. As a matter of fact, you know, there was a movement, it was called the Red Letter Movement, this was years and years ago, this Red Letter Movement that was placing a higher emphasis upon the words in red letters because publishers, what they did, um, or they began to do, was anything that was spoken by Jesus, they would put it in red. Well, the consequence was the, of that was everyone else began to look at the black letters as like, oh, that's just filler. But the red letters are actually the word of God. Well, we've even done away with the red letters nowadays. 
We have completely eradicated any reliance upon the Word of God. As Protestants, we declare, and I don't care what kind of Protestant you are, um, your history and your tradition as a Protestant affirms that the Bible is the final authority for faith and practice. doesn't matter if you're Baptist, you're Methodist, Presbyterian, Anglican, but yet how many of those groups reflect that today? Not very many, right? If any. And so we have completely eradicated Jesus' sermon as the standard of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So most of what I do, unfortunately, most of what I do today is focus on these concepts. Because we never really get past calling and conversion in our vocabulary. Now we need to, we need to be able to establish sound doctrine. Not that we don't cover doctrine. But I'm talking about a true systematic form of doctrine. Because when it's just this scattered whatever the wind blows in, smorgasbord type of effect, it really doesn't produce anything good. And so until we get to the place where we are actually truly teaching doctrine and we have students wanting to learn doctrine, we're never going to do anything. We're never going to accomplish anything. We are not going to see the church advanced in our day and time. We will not see it. It's absolutely 100% impossible. Um, But with that said, we are always around the topic of calling and conversion because we can't get there. And so that's why we're there. And that's why we stay there. So this realization should make us even more diligent to make our calling and election sure. As Peter admonished after setting forth the virtues of the virtues of discipleship in 2 Peter chapter 1 which has all these things being added. Well, it should also cause some holy fear to come upon us as we see just how far away from true Christianity we are. Just how far away from Christ that we really are. Of what Jesus describes as being a follower of Jesus. I think he is probably the authority on that. On what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Just like our creator is the authority over how this world is to work. Jesus is the authority on what Christians are to be and do. So it should be a scary thing. It should cause some holy fear to fall upon us if we ever really truly realize and if we really consider these things. So my whole life has up to the present been a struggle. An absolute 100% struggle. And if yours is not a struggle, I would encourage you, you better start struggling. Better start striving. But it has been a struggle to 
try and get myself and us to actual conversion. And what is scary, not only individually, but within all of Western Christianity, is that we just don't seem to ever reach it. We never seem to get there. And so we like to think that we have, because we have checked the conversion box, you know, we have our little list, and it's like, okay, so I can check that off and see. I, if, if I can get a couple of these checked off to my satisfaction, I think I'll be okay. So we check off our little box. Yeah, yeah, I'm converted. Um, yeah, I believe that Jesus existed or whatever it is I'm supposed to say. Um, and so I check that off. And so we check off our box, otherwise known as a decision card. But that kind of Christianity, which is really no Christianity at all, because Christianity is not about checking boxes. Christianity is about faith and practice. So we're never going to cut it if we stay in that mindset. Not for salvation, not for discipleship, not for advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We have this watered-down faith, um, and it's to the point. In Western civilization, listen, it is to the point that we have watered down the faith so dramatically that there is hardly any discernible faith left. Which should cause the words of Jesus to ring true in our hearts in fear when he said, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? Because we look around now, there's not much to find. We look in our hearts, there's not much to find. We look in our lives, there's not much to find. If we look into our beliefs and practices, there's just not much to find. And of course, this is very concerning and discouraging. But Jesus begins his sermon with what we call the Beatitudes, which describe the characteristics of the people of the kingdom, the people of God, and the blessings that they will receive. Because God has blessed those virtues and characteristics. See, there are blessings on certain things and curses on certain things. What has God blessed? That which is of God. What has God cursed? That which is not of God. That which is of the devil and the world and the flesh and sin. So in verses 13 through 16, Jesus then explains that the people of the kingdom, his followers, are the salt and light of the world. In this, he gives a direct and indirect warning about not living up to that which characterizes kingdom people. In verses 17 through 20, Jesus declares he is the fulfillment of the law and not the abrogator of the law. And then he also issues a blessing to those who uphold the perpetuity of the law and a warning against those who abrogate the law. In verses 21 through 28, Jesus corrects incorrect teachings on the law by giving proper hermeneutical Uh, principles for the interpretation of the law, Jesus specifically illustrates this proper interpretation in relation to murder, adultery, marriage, oaths, 
and loving your neighbor. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, begins with Jesus condemning good works that are conducted in self-righteousness and for physical rather than spiritual benefit. Jesus is not condemning good works, but he's condemning the sinful motivations. In verses 5 through 7, Jesus condemns prayer. Not that he is condemning prayer, but that he is condemning that prayer, which is conducted in self-righteousness and for material rather than spiritual benefit. Jesus is not condemning religious devotion, but rather sinful motivations. Because these religious devotions include prayer, which was specifically illustrated, Jesus then instructs his followers how to pray. We call that the Lord's Prayer in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. And it includes the warning that while praying, that the Father will forgive our trespasses, that we must remember... That God will forgive us if we forgive others. But if we will not forgive others, neither will God forgive us. In verses 16 through 17, Jesus condemns fasting. That is conducted in self-righteousness and for material rather than spiritual benefit. Jesus is not condemning religious devotions, but rather sinful motivations. And that brings us to our text here this morning, Matthew 6, verse 19, where Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness." No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, but for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things, Sufficient for the day is its trouble. From here, Jesus then finishes his sermon by dealing with consistent and a right motivation in judgment, the necessity of seeking the narrow way, fruitful identity and foundations. 
This is a hard-hitting sermon, and we are only going to focus on one part of it this morning and focus on this idea that this is where Christianity begins. And I mean it in the context of the whole Sermon on the Mount, but we're only looking at a portion of it. So there is more than this. It's one of those, but wait, there's more. But we'll narrow it down here this morning. For these things are foundations for conversion. The Sermon on the Mount contains Jesus' standard, or we could say it is the moral ethics of true discipleship. First of all, notice it begins with a right heart. So he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And then he concludes that by saying that wherever your treasure is, there will your or excuse me, he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. And then he says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So first of all, it begins with a right heart. Conversion and discipleship, or being a Christian, is about treasure. And the question is, what do you treasure? We don't ask the questions this way any longer. But that is a question about conversion. What do you value? What do you treasure? What is the treasure you are seeking at? Because everybody has a treasure that they're looking for. Everybody has a treasure they are seeking. Everybody has a treasure that they're trying to find. And what is your treasure? To follow Christ is to value Christ above everything else. But notice in our text, it's not just a mystical and internal value, but a practicing value. He says, do not lay up for yourselves. Actually, there's effort, there's action, there's work that's being done. There is a striving for and a contending for. There is a search and a seeking And so he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. You know, you have to actively seek after that treasure of earth. But he says, rather, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Instead of seeking to acquire material things, it is the work of acquiring spiritual treasures. Now, I'm going to say this just because... I'll get sidetracked and I won't say it later. If you'll notice in the text, he does not say that physical things are unimportant. Remember, he says, the Father knows you have need of these things. They are needed. But you see, it has to be from a right heart. And the right heart is this. Seeking God's will above your own. Seeking God's pleasure above your own. Seeking God's affections above your own. But instead, we're always trying to seek our own. So this is not a denial of the physical, but a seeking and working for treasure that is heavenly in the physical world. In other words, it is doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. It is utilizing 
these things that God gives us and blesses us with for the purpose of his kingdom. Not the purpose of our kingdom, not the purpose of our own affections and pleasures and will. But from a right heart in seeking to make his glory known. You see, it's a distinction of the things that are temporal versus the things that are eternal. Unimportant and important. Inconsequential versus consequential. What we value is what our heart will be focused upon. What we value in our heart is what we love. And so what our treasure is in our heart is what we will value, it's what we will focus upon, and what our heart is focused upon are the things we will do. How much of our lives are given to the things that are pointless? To be a disciple of Christ is to have a right understanding of what is meaningful and meaningless. The reason why we have a meaningless Christianity today, and that is my hobby horse, right? Uh, meaningless Christianity. So on a podcast the other day, I was talking about the means of grace, and I said that Christianity without means is meaningless. Without the means of grace, there's no Christianity. It's meaningless. Well, we have this meaningless Christianity today because the treasures of our heart are the trivial, futile, and empty things that the world cherishes. In other words, there is no difference between us and the world. There's no difference between the disciples of Christ and the disciples of Satan. What a terrible place to be, right? When there's no distinction. When we all value the same things. When we all cherish the same things. When we're all working for the same things. When what we are to be working for as followers of Jesus Christ is that the will of the Father would be done on earth as it is in heaven because Jesus came not to do his own will but to do the will of the Father that sent him and then he has called us to himself in order for us to do that same will of the Father. But what do we value? Well, the main thing, I mean, it's always centered around material things, right? But, but it's basically in the context of, of wealth, in relation to greed. We value wealth. That's what we think is um, something that has high value. But in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4, listen to what Solomon said who is very rich, by the way. He said, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. He also said in Proverbs 16, 16, How much better to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. In Luke chapter 21, there was a crowd... A multitude and one in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, 
Who made me a judge and an arbitrator over you? (laughs) That was Jesus. Um, And he said to him, Take heed and beware of covetousness. Whoa, my goodness. Woo! It was a simple question. Why did he get so uptight? Man. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. But isn't that what we think today? But Jesus said the opposite. And then it says, Jesus spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? See, enough was never enough, right? That's, isn't that what greed is? Enough is never enough? So he said this, I will do this, I will pour pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then then whose will those things be which you have provided? And then Jesus summarizes it by saying this, so he, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There are all kinds of examples. In Luke 18, there was a certain ruler that asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not steal or do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And that young man's response to that was, all these things have I kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Is that not a hard saying? You want to be a disciple of Jesus? But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. You see, Jesus found his weak spot, right? All these I've kept for my youth, which essentially Jesus is saying, what about covetousness? So then Jesus goes on to say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it asked this question, who then can be saved? That's a kind of typical response to a lot of Jesus' declarations and sermons. Who then can be saved? And Jesus responded by saying this, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. You see... We have to have the right heart. 
Where is your heart? Is your heart focused on your own pleasure? Your own will? Your own affections? Is your treasure yourself? Is your treasure possessions? Is your treasure some kind of feeling? Or is your treasure God and his Christ? Where's your treasure? What does your heart treasure? You see, this is the beginnings of true discipleship. Of what we treasure. Do we want to know more about God? Or do we want to know more about celebrities? Do we want to know more about sports figures? Do we want to know more about fill in the blank? Now, we're not saying that these are not realities in the world and things that we need to know, but what we're talking about is where's your heart? Where's your treasure? Do the words of Jesus have more of an impact upon you? Or the words of some celebrity? Where's our heart? Where's the treasure? What does our heart treasure? This is a warning that we find. You can go to 1 1 Timothy chapter 6. And so Paul is telling Timothy, the young preacher, he's like, listen, this is what you need to do in your ministry. And he first starts talking about servanthood. And he says, you need to teach and exhort these things. And if there ever was a day and time when we need to teach these things, oh my word. Basketball coach got suspended for trying to teach this. And so, Timothy was being exhorted by Paul to teach these things and to exhort others in them. And one of the things that is listed here that he is to teach is that godliness with contentment is great gain if you want to truly be wealthy. You may not be wealthy because of circumstances in life, because of things going on in the world. You may not own a mansion. You may not be a millionaire. But godliness and contentment is greater gain than those things. If those things come along, well, fine and great. But the greatest treasure, the great gain, is godliness with contentment. And Paul says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Therefore, I do not pray for you to be rich in this world. If you become rich in this world... I hope you give thanks to God 
for the blessings that he has bestowed upon you and you advance the kingdom with the tools he has given you. But what I pray for is that you would be rich in Christ. Therefore, Paul tells Timothy to command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, haughty or to trust in certain riches or in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Again, material things can be a great benefit and a blessing. And God has given us things to enjoy, but where is your treasure? Is that your treasure? Or is it the God who gives your treasure? See, we're told not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. See, we are to have the same heart that Moses had. Isn't it an amazing statement in Hebrews chapter 11, what's said about Moses? I mean, remember, Moses was raised in the house of Pharaoh. Some believe that he would have been the next Pharaoh. Regardless, he was in the house of royalty in Egypt. All the rest of his brethren were slaves. But Moses was raised up. And it says in Hebrews 11, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Isn't that an amazing statement? But that's the kind of heart we are to have. That is a converted heart. This is why Paul tells the Corinthians not to look at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Therefore, Solomon, in a warning to his son, said, keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. Why? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And whatever your heart treasures, out of it spring the issues of life. That is what your life is going to be built upon. It's what you are going to be and do. Therefore we are told by the writer in Hebrews to take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you a heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You see, if we have a heart of faith, it will treasure God above everything else. Isn't that the commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. That's a converted heart. In Colossians chapter 3, 
Again, Paul says, if you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sits on the right hand of God, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. What is he saying? That true discipleship begins with a right heart. It's not a denial of the physical. It's not Gnosticism. God created this world and saw that it was good. It was sin that corrupted the world. It is sin... Rebellion against God, that is the negative thing in this discussion. That is the harmful part of this story. That is what is uh, uh, the ruin of this world. But the things that God created, they are all good. But we are not to worship the creature. We are not to worship that which God created for the blessings of man We are to worship the creator who gives blessings to man, specifically his people. So when we read here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. What is he saying? He's saying work for the eternal. Work for the things that matter. Work for the things that last. It might be nice. To have a Mustang. But you know that thing's going to rust. And if it's a newer model, it's going to rust quicker than ever. But it's going to rust. And it's going to decay. And eventually it will disappear. In the scheme of eternity, it's not going to matter much. Would it be nice? Would it be something that could be enjoyed? Yes and yes. But it's not eternal. Don't set your affection on it. Don't set your heart on it. For where your treasure is, that will your heart be also. In other words, whatever your treasure is, that is your God. That is what you will worship and serve. Father, We pray that you would give us a right heart that truly desires to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That truly desires to follow him. That truly desires to work in his kingdom. That truly desires to love him and obey him. A heart that is resolved to follow him. May you give us such a heart. In Christ's name we pray, amen.